papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat to get insurance. The Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis and examination of some of the issues confronting the news media in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome for our conversation this week. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, your putative host here with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. How are you doing today? I'm good, but I didn't quite understand. You said putative, of course. I took it as punitive. punitive. It's one of those big words, you know, for you PhDs. I thought you'd appreciate that. I thought it was punitive as opposed to punitive, but now I get it. Oh, well, I could be your punitive host, too. Just stand back. Exactly. Um, Barbara Lombardo is here, a longtime editor of the Saratogian, executive editor of the Troy Record, now teaching at the University of Albany. Barbara, how are you? I am uh, hanging in there and looking forward to today's discussion. Well, there's a lot to uh, talk about. And Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association, longtime editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. Judy reporting in from uh, northernmost parts of this listing area. What's it like up there? The birds are singing like crazy. I had to shut the door and the windows, otherwise it would interfere with our discussion today. Oh, They're so well, loud. I don't know. I think a little background noise. You know, I miss, um, <laughs> what was that show, Alan, you used to air with, you know, the gentleman from Massachusetts, Robert J. Lertzma. He would start his program with the uh, birds chirping for five minutes or something. And we were when we were live at Tanglewood, we actually had the real birds as opposed to the, you know, putative birds. <laughs> the putative Judy, birds. I thought I thought you were talking about the birds tweeting to segue us into one of the topics oh, today. <laughs> a brilliant point. The president versus Twitter tweeting. Okay, right, absolutely. You know, this is really getting crazy. The latest news being that the president now apparently plans an executive order about social media companies, including review of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. We'll get to that in just a, a second here because that has broader implications. But here we have Twitter finally cracking down on things the president is saying, that is offering a fact check on what are sometimes his fact-free tweets. You know, it's, it's almost like Twitter playing a role of a news organization, right? Alan, would you say this is overdue or overreach? Well, and then there's a third choice, which is not enough. In other words, here he is, he's saying that Morning Joe is a murderer. (laughs) You know, I mean, I didn't see anything on Twitter saying, fact check this one. So they did it on a couple of things, but they did it in a very de minimis way, And one wonders whether or not they are doing enough or whether they've opened Pandora's box here. Judy? Well, they didn't do the uh, Scarborough tweets, but they did put a fact check on the um, presidential tweet about voting fraud. And I think what angered him most was the fact that when they directed people to the truth about this, they directed them to a CNN website, which is one of his arch enemies. This whole idea of adding that 
little bar at the end of the tweet. It came hours after the tweet. I think it was too little, too late. This whole idea of the president reacting to it, though, is much ado about nothing. A lot of his executive orders are just for show, and it's for discussion and it's to distract us from the fact that he'll be reached 100,000 deaths this week as a result of the coronavirus. So at least it's something. I think Twitter should be actually more active, and I think that they actually do need to step up and be a publisher in some respects. They've gotten away with not owning their work for a long, long time, as Facebook has. Barbara? I think there's a slippery slope when there sometimes is a very gray line between what is absolutely not true and what can be a matter of interpretation or context. So there has to be a lot of care for it on the two highly controversial and totally false ones. I think Twitter should have removed the tweet. I clicked on the link to say, see more facts about this. And it does have CNN, but it doesn't just have CNN. It has lots of different sources about the mail-in ballot situation, including just some statements provided by Twitter without attribution that say that this is false. So it was a long, a pretty long string of comebacks against the president's assertion. If it's a totally false and undefensible indefensible tweet, why not take it down? Show some intestinal fortitude. Why do you think that this happened now after years of the president, in effect, abusing the truth on Twitter? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, this president has made Twitter, right? We all agree on that. I think, you know, Twitter was around, people were tweeting, but here comes this guy and he starts tweeting virtually every day and all night long. And Well, it had to help them a great deal. And one wonders whether or not they were a little reticent about criticizing them. The other thing is they enjoy certain privileges, if I'm not wrong about this. And just like organized baseball has exemptions, so do they in terms of being monopoly in the case of baseball. So he is now threatening them, basically. I'm going to take it away. And I think that that becomes pretty important when you analyze why they're doing it and why they're doing it now. So your question is, why now? And the answer is there's been tremendous pressure from a lot of people in this country who just think that this president has been a national disgrace. And if you're hearing from half the country or more all the time, you begin to get a little nervous. And who knows what relative you have at home who's screaming at you that she or he is going to leave if you don't behave. So so the point that that you're making here, which uh, Jay referred to earlier, is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And what that does is Communications Decency Act, just think of the Orwellian tone of that, but that exempts online platforms from any liability for what users post. So that means that the liability of anything that is reported that, that Twitter picks up, say, from a news organization, the liability reverts to the news organization. If you're going to sue for libel, if there is an inaccuracy, it's not Twitter that you go after. It is the journalist that is doing that. Beyond that, there is no recompense. That is what journalists have talked about for a long time, is the online platforms, including Facebook, do not pay journalists or journalism organizations anything for all of the content 
that they publish, that is the platforms publish, that is generated by our expensive news gathering organizations. So here, now you've got the president with a draft order saying that the White House Office of Digital Strategy is going to establish a tool for reporting online censorship. They're going to have something called the White House Tech Bias Reporting Tool, and they're going to review whether Section 230 ought to be taken away. And the question is, is this a real assault on freedom of speech, or is this just Trumpian showmanship? And should we welcome a review of Section 230, or are we going to be worried about what may result from this? Judy, you want to start to dig into that? Is this good or not? You know, I kind of welcome the uh, uh, review of Section 230. This goes back to 1996 when the Internet was fairly new, and the reason for 230, as my understanding, was to encourage the platforms to grow and to encourage the proliferation of free speech. I don't think when this was passed people had any idea the Internet and social media would become what it has become. As my understanding, it protects anybody who posts things online from, from lawsuits, from legal liability. When I ran a newspaper, you could post anything you wanted to online, but we didn't. That that was the point. You had to exercise some judgment. And if something was harmful, was incorrect, was libelous, we would not publish it. It's not that we couldn't have, but we didn't. This was especially about online-only content, especially in the early days. I think it does need to be reviewed, but certainly it does not need to be reviewed from a partisan perspective. And if they're going to start reporting bias on news, just go to Facebook. My God, there's bias on both sides, but it tends to be more heavily weighted from the right-wing media. There's a lot of that out there in social media. Mm -hmm. Barbara, you think that's right? I have such mixed feelings. I worry about things that lift protections from publishers, from news organizations, that might publish something that is maybe inadvertently incorrect, and then you can have you can even have nuisance losses. Losses without merit can cost thousands of dollars, as you know, to defend. However, I think that Twitter needs to be held accountable. My bigger problem is that I don't want this federal government holding them accountable. And I and yeah. back to your question about whether it's just a Trump being Trump. I think there there is part of that, and I think there is a real concern that there are people who would like to censor speech on Twitter that they don't agree with. Hey, Alan, why is it though? I mean, just to go back to the question mm-hmm. of why now? Why do you think Twitter didn't crack down on the attack on Joe Scarborough? This baseless claim that Joe Scarborough was involved in the homicide. In a homicide, that one of his aides died. Nineteen Why years did, ago, did Twitter not do that? Hmm? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know what their thinking is. As I said earlier, I think they may be correcting him, but not enough, and very selectively. That's obvious. But I can't get inside their heads and try to figure out what it is that is motivating them. There certainly has to be a little bit of a dollop of self-concern about this president. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Rex, he went after Fox also. You'd think that, you know, this guy who is totally protected by Fox over and over again would be very careful about alienating them. But no, if anybody on that station says anything wrong, according to him, he's on them also. Yeah, he went after them, but he, you know, it's like the, the opinion hosts are always with them 100%. 
I think he objects when there's actually, imagine that, some news that doesn't quite conform to the bias, and so he'll attack Fox, but then quickly get them back in. And it gives him an opportunity to elevate this little oddball competitor on the outside, One America News Network, OAN or OANNN. They've been, you know, trying so hard to get some attention. They've just been this devoted effort to curry favor since even before Trump, uh, well, actually since the time he announced he would be running. And now finally, you even have an OAN reporter actually getting called on in the White House press room. This would be like the Fox News of Fox News. It is way off on the right wing. And now that the president is going to them instead of to Fox News sometimes. Weird. Amazing. Isn't that Vanity Fair reporting that a group that's aligned with Donald Trump Jr. and the co-chair of the Republican National Committee have a big stake in OAN now? Ah, so there's a financial component, not just a political one. Right, um, with an eye toward Trump TV. Whenever the OAN Gary. reporter speaks up, for me, watching the press briefings, it's a matter of comic relief because the questions are off the wall, not serious, not responsible, and actually they make what the president is saying seem sane because the questions are not good. They should not be there. They are not a legitimate member of the press corps. I don't know how they got into the briefing room, but I think some strings were pulled. Yes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting into the briefing room is clearly, let's say, a partisan effort at this point, and they're, they're not good. Good reviews, by the way, of the new press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany. If people haven't watched her press briefings, you may just remember her as one of those sort of interchangeable faces defending Donald Trump on cable media channels for many years. And then he has tapped Kayleigh McEnany to come in and kind of try to rescue a terrible press operation. But she is getting negative reactions from the press corps for such things as her complaint that the press was very eager to report that churches shouldn't be opening and for being unable to support the president's factless tweets, for example. Like when the president said that uh, Michigan was doing something illegal by doing mail-in ballot applications, she couldn't actually explain what he meant about illegal, nor can she explain the fact that she herself has done mail-in ballots for all of the last 10 years of elections. Every time she's voted in the last 10 years, according to the Tampa Bay Times, Kayleigh McEnany voted by mail. And now she's defending the president's attack on vote by mail. As well, Rex, as the fact that the president has been voting by mail. Don't confuse me with the facts, as my dad used to say. Just say it and somebody will believe it. Throw it up in the air. I would note, too, that Kayleigh McEnany has gotten bad reviews from mainstream media people from Pointer Institute, from reasonable people who expect a certain level of accurate reporting, answering questions as representative of the, of the White House, but that she's so political instead. But there are plenty of people, unfortunately, that think what she's doing is terrific, shutting up those chills for the Democrats and not bothering to answer questions that are nasty, as the president would say. So she's doing everything out of the Trump playbook which means she also is going to have fans, unfortunately. Not go to the press briefings is one thing we could do. I think she's in over her head, and though she's lasted a little bit longer than Anthony Scaramucci, I don't think she's going to last much longer. I'd love to see... Uh, why, why, do you, why do you think that, Judy? <laughs> because, for example, when she was asked about why the president retweeted a tweet making fun of Joe Biden for wearing a mask on Memorial Day, her response was, well, she just thought it was odd that he wore a mask outside, but he never wore a mask when he was in his basement. Well, duh. Uh, that was really stupid. <laughs> but 
But she serves at the, at the pleasure of the president. So but, why would we think that she's not going to survive in that spot? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, nobody survives in that job. Right? I mean, you know. That's a good one. (laughs) Number two, as soon as he thinks she's doing damage to him in any way, away she goes. I mean, this is not a guy who ever takes responsibility for his lies or what he says. So if it means that they're looking at their their polls and, you know, he's being seen as being dishonest or whatever else, you fire somebody. That's what he always does. Mm -hmm. So... We need to um, step away from the White House here and look at another matter that is quite interesting, and and, and that is the tragic uh, death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and what this says about reporting in these days. George Floyd, of course, is the man who died while a police officer was pressing his knee into his neck. George Floyd was African-American. The officer was white. The cops, the four cops involved have been fired. The mayor says it's an outrage. If you look at the video, it is terribly troubling. And here's what's interesting. This video, which emerged hours later, told a very different story from what the police statement put out. There was an allegation of forgery or passing a fake dollar bill, $20 bill. The suspect, according to the police, quote, appeared to be under the influence and physically resisted officers and appeared to be, quote, suffering medical distress. And then the video comes out and shows that that was all a lie. You know, the availability of that kind of video is the kind of thing that we in the media would have loved in past years. But just think about the number of times when we are forced to take just a police statement about an event, and it is the only thing we have on a topic if there is no video to draw it into question. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, how much of our reporting actually has been inaccurate because it's, in effect, been sanitized by untrue police statements. Well, you know, Rex, Los Angeles burned because of a video, right? Wasn't King um, was on video. And so with the introduction of this, and now we're seeing, as we speak this morning, we're seeing Minneapolis burning. Another person's actually been killed in those protests. You're right about Uh, videos. We don't know how much. I feel terrible for what I hope are the majority of upstanding police officers who try to do the right thing, try to act responsibly. And get lumped in with these terrible, terrible officers. And if we didn't have citizen videos, these would not have become news. Yep. Because we cannot rely often on immediate access to government videos, the police videos. They're very hard to get. Police surveillance, public or municipal surveillance camera video, incredibly difficult to get. So if it weren't for the citizen video, this story would have been delayed and delayed and delayed. So what we really need is better public access to police body camera footage and the footage that the police department has at their disposal. Which, of course, in New York is very hard to come by. This is a fight that we in the media have been waging for years without any success because of the power of the police and firefighters unions, and that is Section 50A of the New York State Civil Rights Law, which has been interpreted by the courts to preclude us from access to not only police disciplinary records, which was the intent of the law, but also we've been blocked in some jurisdictions from body cam footage, from videos rolling from police cars, blocked from access to any information about whether police departments have taken action against officers or what kind of complaints have been filed. So the police and the firefighters now, and also this has now been 
uh, expanded to include corrections officers, have protection from the media being able or from the public being able to get access to information about their records. So if you don't have citizens out there shooting video like this, you're really left in the dark. You know, there's something else here, if I may, and that is the whole concept of whether the media has been deficient in being able to portray what the ramifications of racism in America are. Now, that sounds sort of formulaic. It's not meant to be. I tell you, my perspective has been radically altered. I have an African-American grandchild, and when I see a police action like this, knee to the neck, or somebody jogging and being put upon, or somebody in Central Park, the police being called because a black man asked a white woman, who has subsequently apologized, of course, to keep the dog on a leash and not threatening at all. But this all ends up to a fabric of racism And how does the media portray what that racism means to the African-American community? That is the toughest question I can possibly pose. It's very difficult. I think you're right. I cringe when the president refers to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus, the China virus, when he attacks China. My daughter is Chinese, and I worry about these attacks and what kind of a racist backlash there will be. You know, when this stuff becomes personal for us, we recognize the peril. But when you call it out in the media, which I think reporters do, reporters have asked, why are you calling it that? And the, the White House continues to do so. This is what leads a lot of us to believe that we are not dealing with people of goodwill. And when you say that, you, of course, alienate and upset an entire group of people who are the president's political supporters. But it does seem clear that this is not the kind of behavior that this divisive, racist rhetoric is not the sort of thing that we can avoid calling out, right? Right. And it becomes very personal when your daughter is Chinese or when your grandson is African-American. The kind of thing that I'm feeling right now, which is real fear and an understanding of what this means to, to me and mine and you and yours, in this case, Rex, is something that could be in a column, an opinion column. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how do you accurately report on what racism is? I think part of the answer, and this is not an easy solution, is having more diverse people gathering the news and reporting it. And that's been a longstanding shortcoming in the media to not have people of color, especially serving as reporters and editors. And I think, you know, just listening to Rex and Alan, understandably seeing how the situation is when it touches you personally. So our job in the media is to be able to tell those stories, whether or not it touches us individually, because it does touch so many people. So do you think that diversity in our staffing is part of the issue? Well, it is. And I can tell you that I know Rex has tried very, very hard to recruit people when he was editor of the Times Union of Color. I know we at WAMC are always trying to do that. It's not easy. I don't know why it's not easy, but we sure as heck try. Yep. It was never easy at the Saratoga either. 
we had a photographer who was pulled over in one of the villages in Saratoga County for driving while black. Racism is so insidious, it's hard to really capture on a day-by-day basis. It's fairly easy to cover outrages, like the outrages we've had recently, when a black man is murdered, essentially, by police officers. But racism is pervasive, it's insidious, and it happens every day in stores and restaurants and classrooms. I mean, how do you really get a handle on that and advance our society so we become far more understanding of the differences and similarities between us all? I think diversity in hiring is is tremendously important so that you're more able to tell the stories of those communities. It is simply that you will be more in touch with the communities of color or with any community that is disadvantaged and if you're able to identify with them. But part of it, too, is being able to count on, on society to respond appropriately when they see and are made aware of these outrages, that's more difficult when from the top, the ethic, the message that is sent is one that is tolerant of racism and of offensive behavior, you know, because it sends a signal that this is okay. And that permeates society. There are the, the powerful messaging of the White House has that impact. So we are somewhat hobbled by that. And it is a It's a challenge for all of us in terms of storytelling. It is, and I think part of it is being very sensitive to our choice of headlines, our choice of verbs and words and sentences, how we portray the news and and whether we give the police or an administration, whether we frame our story so that it looks like we accept the official version of something. We have to be so careful about that. Absolutely. The challenges of reporting fully and accurately a community are exacerbated when part of that reporting involves communities of color. And so fortunately, uh, you know, the great thing is we're talking about this as a, as a social issue, not just a political one. So we need to all do our part to stay on top of it. We've run out of time. What a great conversation today. So we thank you. Alan Shartok, our genial host here of Northeast Public Radio. <laughs> genial? You watch that. <laughs> Lisa didn't call you putative, right? Judy Patrick from the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina. Thanks to you all for joining us this week on The Media Project. Yonder to her uncle in Kodong. Now newspaper men meet such interesting people. It must have startled poor old Sadie's uncle. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ting-a-ling, ting-a-ling, ling-a-ling-a-ling. Now, newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the Vice President for Editorial Development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at WAMC. 
WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling Advertising, get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess Oh, publishers are such interesting people Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press